Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, your word tells us that you are a consuming fire. Even the smallest glimpse of your back caused Moses to tremble with fear. But throughout history, you have given your people signs of your love and your covenant faithfulness. You have given the rainbow as a promise not to destroy the earth because of our disobedience. You have given us the, the Passover as a covenant promise to your people that you will ultimately triumph over the things that enslave us, that even death is subject to your great power. But we are not here this morning to celebrate those things. We have gathered because of the ultimate sign of your covenant faithfulness, the death and resurrection of your son, your only son, your beloved, and his defeat of evil and death and of all of the enemies of your people. We thank you that in Christ you have given us the ultimate sign of your love for your people. Father, we lament this morning that it was necessary for you to send Jesus to redeem us. We look at the brokenness and the perversion of what was once good and ordered, and we weep. We weep because of the harm that we have done to each other. We weep because of our sins against you. Father, please forgive us because we often do not know what we are doing. But for those times when we are intentionally rebellious, please bring us to our end swiftly, that we may repent and again turn our gaze heavenward and call on your steadfast mercy and love. We pray for endurance this morning. We pray that you would hold us firm in our faith and that we would hope in you by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is only by the work of your Spirit that we can be victorious, both in this life and in the one to come. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Bethany Baptist Church in Portland and their pastor, Trevor Binkley. We pray that you would consume them by your spirit, that they would be consumed by you with love for each other and love for you, and that they would have strength to endure until the end. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Outward Church here in Salem and their pastor, Matt Porter. We pray that they also would be consumed by your spirit and have the strength to endure to the end. As we wait for the consummation of a new humanity and a new earth, give us wisdom to understand what it means to walk in righteousness and justice. May we listen and obey your word this morning. Jesus, you are the only one worthy to judge the living and the dead. And it's in these things that we ask. Amen. 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 Why don't you have a seat? And you can turn to Daniel 12, the end of the book of Daniel. When we started looking at the book of Daniel in the first week of January, I began my introduction with the story of my flight over to Norway to play professional basketball on 9-11-2001. It was the closest I have come to a situation in my life where I could possibly understand what it was like for Daniel and the rest of uh, the Jews uh, and his companions to be in exile in the midst of Babylon. In Norway, I was in a new culture, even though I have Scandinavian heritage, it was a very different culture for me. I felt very alone at that point. With no immediate way home because of the shutdown of all the flights into the U.S., I felt stuck, even a bit exiled. And past the time, I read a Bible that I had brought with me, and the message that I saw there was that there was something bigger, even than all the chaos that was swirling about in the world around me because of 9-11. 
that even though the world around me was going crazy and apocalyptic rumors were flying through the air, I could hope in God and in his ultimate plan for the world. Reading the Bible at that point, it gave me a spirit of endurance. But there was one other thing that helped me. You see, after I decided to leave Norway and to stop playing basketball, I purchased a return ticket back here to the States. I couldn't use it until the day that they reopened the flights. I had it in my hand, but it wasn't quite time for it yet. And so for the days remaining in Norway, that ticket in hand assured me that as soon as the flights opened back up, I would be able to travel home. Now, barring a plane crash, no matter how weird things got for me in Norway in the days after that point, I was going to make it home. I had assurance amidst uncertainty. Now, as we've seen over the last five months, this is what the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel gave to the Jews in exile, this same idea, assurance amidst uncertainty. Six chapters of narrative, six chapters of visions given to God's people through Daniel, all to provide assurance amidst uncertainty while they're in exile. And the primary message contained in this book gives encouragement to a people in exile that, in spite of present circumstances, in spite of present chaos and sin, God is in control and has a plan that will ultimately bring his people into his presence. His plan will bring us home. So it made sense for us as your pastors and elders to look at the book of Daniel. We need that same message deeply infused into our beings as we watch the world around us slip further and further into chaos with each passing day. We want each of you to know, as we conclude Daniel today, that you can have assurance amidst uncertainty. You can have assurance amidst uncertainty. Now that seems like an oxymoron. But this is what the Bible gives us, assurance amidst uncertainty. Now, let's begin by reading the context of our text today. Ryan did a great job last week expositing it, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 12. And we're going to read that to gain a little bit of context as we move into our main text, 5 through 13. Let's take a look there, Daniel 12, 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation, till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. What we see first is God giving Daniel assurance in the resurrection and judgment to come. Assurance in and assurance of the resurrection and judgment to come. Now, with so many conspiracy theories floating around contemporary Christianity about what will happen in the end of days, many in the church often major in the minors. They focus on things that we don't have assurance will ever happen. But there are three things, three things, that the Bible says over and over again that we can be assured will occur. First, we can be assured that times 
will get troublesome. Life will be hard. Times will get troublesome. What this looks like and how it will come about will be shown in more detail when we preach through the book of Revelation later uh, in the year. But even as we will see here today, the wicked will continue to act wickedly and the power of God's people will be tested. Friends, we are not going to get rid of sin in this world, hatred in this world, on our own. Obviously, we should attempt to have impact on the world around us, but the likelihood and idea that humanity itself will get rid of sin without the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth, the Bible says, is a false idea. But even amidst that, God will show himself. Even amidst this chaos that the Bible says will come, the trouble that will come and is showing itself more and more, God will show himself victorious in his spiritual and physical power. So times will be troublesome. Second, the Bible declares something that is not explicitly noted here, but inferred from a connection to Daniel 7. You remember the chapter of Daniel 7 where it talks about the Son of Man. Here's specifically what I'm referring to. In 7, 26 through 27, it says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Speaking of the final world uh, ruler that we've talked about in the past. And it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. There will be this son of man figure who we know to be Jesus Christ who will sit in authority and judgment over individuals, nations, and spiritual powers. And there in Daniel 7, the son of man is given authority by God and seen sitting in judgment over the earthly nations and spiritual powers, paving the way for his people, his church, to reign. And the Messiah, the son of man, is to be the one that conducts the judgment that is referred to in Daniel 12. Now, the New Testament fills in the detail and lets us know that this Son of Man is Jesus and that as the historic creed state, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus promised it, angelic messengers proclaimed it, and the New Testament writers affirmed it. Jesus will return. Amen? And third, not only will times get troublesome, not only... Will there be a judgment to come? But third, the Bible promises that in order to have that judgment, there will be a resurrection of the dead to be judged. That is explicit. They will either be raised and judged to eternal life in union with Christ and his people, or raised and judged into everlasting contempt away from God. We can be assured of these three things. Times will get troublesome. Resurrection will occur, and judgment will occur. As Ryan walked us through last week, this truth, this fact, is going to drive us in a direction that reveals our hearts toward God. It reveals our spirits. And there are at least four negative ways for this to drive us, and I want to give you this application as a follow-up to what was presented to us last week. And I want to see if the Spirit is going to convict any of you of the possibility that these exist in your life. We'll look at uh, where it should drive us a bit later, but let's look at where the idea of resurrection and judgment drives many people in a negative sense. For many in our culture, there is an immediate dismissal of the possibility of impending judgment. Many in our culture, in our, in our world, live lives 
as if judgment will never occur in spite of the promise of Scripture. But friends, to dismiss the resurrection and judgment to come is as nonsensical as a baby playing peekaboo with their parent who thinks that because they cover their eyes and can't see you, you can't see them. You know what I'm talking about? There is no church in front of me. I can't see them, therefore they can't see me. Can you all see me? Absolutely you can. Folks who do this, the world, and unfortunately many in the church too, the world is full of grown adults who are covering their eyes by distracting themselves with the cares of this world and saying, God, you can't see me, nor can you judge me because I'm ignoring you. But friends, since it has been promised by Scripture, every human must decide how we will engage the truth of resurrection and judgment. If you engage it by dismissing it, the question then becomes, why are you here today? Why are you living a halfway moral life? Friends, if there is no judgment, no ultimate justice, why not eat, drink, and be merry and selfish until you die? Why are you here? Your halfway morality will not earn you a right into God's kingdom. God has promised the judgment to come, and that judgment will not go well. For anyone who dismisses it or engages the idea of it with a half-hearted morality, this truth of the resurrection and judgment to come does not allow for buffet Christianity, for Christians who pick portions of scriptural truth and then leave others. Either God is a liar and his word is false and manipulative, or God is true, and everyone who wants to dismiss his authority is a liar. And if you don't know Christ or you've been walking in apathy or half-heartedly toward him, you need to wrestle with the truth of the resurrection and judgment today. Your dismissal of it does not make it go away. Well, maybe you don't fully dismiss it, but you hear about this judgment and it drives you away from Christ or causes you to look with disdain on God. How dare he judge us? Now, if this is you, then you have decided that you are the judge and in your view of the world, God is unjust and should be held to account under your authority. Based on the way many live their life, even within the church, I think this one is possibly the most widespread in our culture, and possibly the church. It shows itself in self-pity and the victim mentality we talked about two weeks ago. And these attitudes infer that God owes us and we will hold him in judgment rather than praising him, that he has not given us what we deserve what our depraved hearts actually deserve, which is an eternity and punishment away from his presence. For others, it might cause you to lean into the judgment, but only so that God can deal with all those other people who disagree with you and who you don't like. You might use it as your own personal vindication, but when we realize that it is our own hearts, actions, and words that will be judged, it should instead cause us to fall to our knees in praise and thanksgiving to the grace God has shown us through Christ and to implore him to show that grace to others as we evangelize the lost. Or lastly, maybe hearing about the judgment causes an unhealthy fear and retreat from God as if he is an authoritarian despot. If that is the case for you, I want to encourage you to take a second look at how you view God. God is the perfect Father who has called us and empowered us by the gospel and his Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to him. And when we make a mistake and engage our selfish, sinful selves, 
He is so good that he has paved the way for immediate forgiveness and reconciliation if there is true repentance. Often we allow broken earthly pictures of authority and the accusations of the enemy to confuse the truth about how good, right, just, and loving our Father God is, and we instead condemn ourselves and others. God did not come in Christ to condemn you. He came to save you and to save the world because he is faithful. And we even see this in our text this morning. As we see next, not only assurance in the judgment and resurrection to come, but assurance in the faithfulness of God. We see assurance in the faithfulness of God. Let's now step into verse 5 and read our scripture for today. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days." Here we have two angelic figures, possibly the messenger angel Gabriel and the spiritual authority behind Israel, Michael, on either shore of the stream where Daniel is standing based on the vision starting in chapter 10 and moving all the way through here, chapter 12. They're looking towards the center of the stream, running through the city. It's an irrigation stream, and there hovering above the waters is this third figure, the man in linen, who we surmised in chapter 10, as Tyler taught us, is most likely a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, or what's called a Christophany. Can you say Christophany? It's a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, the one who will be crowned the Son of Man from chapter 7. In both verses 4 and verse 8, it says that the words of this vision and really God's overall plan of salvation and redemption, they're sealed. It uses this word sealed. And this word for sealed has less to do with hiding the truth than it does with confirming it, making sure it will happen. The seal is placed as a king would have placed a wax seal upon a scroll so that when it is finally opened, the reader would know that it had the sovereignty, authority, and promise of the king behind it. And this assurance of a sealed plan was declared to the Jews because they were existing in exile in the midst of a pagan nation and wondered, God, will you ever help us? And so this plan, this 
vision was written to the saints of God that desired to see him and desired the resurrection unto eternal life. It was written not to cause fear and trepidation, to make you think of all the things that will happen at the end of days, but rather to cause joy and thanksgiving and praise. It was written to give endurance and patience to the saints. One of the things that has been such a blessing to me as one of your pastors in this church is how many of you have come up and said, I have always been scared of Daniel and scared of Revelation because how they've been taught to me previously, but I'm taking out of Daniel how excited we're to be, how hopeful we're to be, how much we can rest in God in the midst of chaos. Oh man, amen. That does my heart good because that's the point of this book. Now here you have the one who stands in the center of the stream above it as the image of God himself, the one to whom all authority will one day be given. And what is he doing? He's making an oath. The fact that he hovers over the water speaks to the idea that he is acting as the very embodiment of God who alone has power over the waters of chaos, whose spirit alone hovered over the chaotic waters at the moment of creation. There is no higher power to follow through with what is about to be promised, the oath that is made, and what has been promised thus far in Daniel. In those days, as you would see in a court today, an oath was usually made with one hand raised toward heaven, in essence, inviting God himself to hold the person making the oath accountable should they break it. But this individual in linen, this embodiment of God himself goes beyond that. He lifts both hands towards heaven and proclaims that God's plan will occur and be finished just as God had planned. He swears not by himself, but by him who lives forever, the Father God, God the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There is no higher authority. The two angels, the powerful spiritual beings on either side of the stream, they act as witnesses to this oath confirming it, that God would indeed bring his plans to pass, that he would indeed bring to pass his promises for his people and for creation. This moment is amazing in its impact. God is saying, I will do what I have promised. Brothers and sisters, the plans and purposes spelled out in the word of God are not half-hearted or mythical or fake. They do not change and they are unable to be revoked. They are indeed happening and will come to pass. They are faithful and true because the God who promised them is faithful and true. Now, someone might respond with the question, well, Hans, how can we know this? How can we in 2021 be assured that the promises that still stand to be fulfilled will come to pass? Jesus isn't here yet, Hans, they might say. Well, friends, we need to look no further than the gospel. From the story of the fall onward in the Bible, the prophets of the Old Testament were looking forward to a Messiah that would give them victory over their enemies And grant them the kingdom of God and restore creation. It's from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And for entire periods of hundreds of years during the Exodus and then in exile and after the prophet Malachi, God's people thought he's not making good on his promises. They thought he'd forgotten them, much as many Christians do today. But then in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, God made good on his promises 
The scripture makes this clear over and over again. Look at this one part of the gospel that Paul preaches in Acts 13, 32. He says, and we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. By Jesus' death and resurrection, he opened up a way for the Jews to be the blessing to the Gentiles that had been planned through the seed of Abraham as he promised in the Old Testament. By conquering sin and death and raising victoriously, Jesus made it possible for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to be reconciled to God. And in so doing, Jesus proved God the Father faithful in all that he had foretold through the Old Testament prophets. This type of Christ here in Daniel 12, the man in linen, stretched out his arms to heaven to proclaim the faithfulness and trustworthiness of the plan of God, and then, almost 600 years later, the incarnate deity, Jesus Christ in human form, again stretched out his arms in crucifixion, not just to proclaim God's trustworthiness, but to prove it beyond any doubt, once and for all eternity. God does and God will do what he promises. So when we are in those moments of uncertainty that we are also promised will come, those times of trial and tribulation that we are also promised will come, when we are in those moments of suffering where our humanity and flesh lean toward mistrusting God, friends, remember the cross, remember the gospel. Remember the fact that in his act of sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus provided the proof that all humanity needs that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is indeed trustworthy and good. When you are tempted to think God is unjust or evil or malicious, remember the cross. When you are surrounded by a toxic culture that seems to be overwhelming the good news and sucking many we know who are proclaiming to be believers, remember the cross. God's people and God's plan will never, ever be overcome. Amen? Amen? But maybe you still struggle. Maybe you will admit that you want to know more, that you've had a hard time trusting And so, like the angels, like Daniel, you have questions of uncertainty. Well, our text deals with that as well, as it gives us assurance of God's answer to questions of uncertainty. Assurance of God's answer to questions of uncertainty. The first question that is posed is done so by one of the two angels standing on the banks of the stream. Now, the Bible gives us hints elsewhere that angels are just as curious about God's plan as we are. Does that make you feel a little bit better? Even the angels are like, huh, what, when, how, who, right? They're doing the same thing. They do not have omniscience, and it is such a curious thing to these immensely powerful spiritual beings that the Almighty God would condescend to give authority into the hands of humanity. And then even die for us in order to reconcile us to himself. If I were an angel, I'd be confused as well. 
And so Jesus himself in the gospel says that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. And this fact that angels don't know the exact hour helps us interpret the responses that they are given later, given as numbers. This helps us understand that the numbers provided are indeed symbolic and not literal statements of time. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said in Mark 13, 32, yeah, the angels don't even know. No, he'd say, oh, they absolutely know. It's 1,290 days, right? These are not given as literal time periods. God's answer to this question of when this will happen, when this will occur, is the same phrase that is used symbolically in Daniel 7, time times, so singular, plural, and then half a time. As we noted then, this is not a precise time period. It is not three and a half years because the second plural is not necessarily just two, and it's not speaking necessarily of years, as many would like it to. It's stating that just as evil and sin seems to be gaining steam and overcoming the world, it will be cut off without warning. And this will happen at the same time that God's people will suffer great distress, most likely because of this overwhelming same evil. This is what is referred to by the, quote, shattering of the power of the holy people coming to an end, end quote. Just as the fortunes of God's people are hanging by a thread, as he has done in the past, God steps in to show his power over the world. Just when it seems like evil is overwhelming the world, God steps in to crush it. The second question that is then asked is by Daniel himself, what shall be the outcome of these things? So we have a when and we have a what. Like humanity today, we want to be in control and know the details of the last things. But knowing the detail is not the point of what the author is communicating here. And so in answer to that question, the man in linen reiterates that there is a set number of days until God will gather together his people, resurrect the dead, and judge righteousness and evil. We so badly want to press these numbers of 1,290 and 1,335 and previous numbers of 2,300 days and evenings and the 77s and even the time times and half a time. We so badly want to take these and press them into a calendar to figure out the timeline of God's plan. But friends, we can't. Jesus told his disciples that it is not for us to know, but simply to trust. Simply to trust in the midst and surrender ourselves to the God who loves us and died for us, even to the point of giving up our lives. In that trust, we simply continue proclaiming his truth until he returns. The Apostle Peter taps into this same truth and helps those wrestling with the uncertainty of why Christ has not yet returned and what the outcome will be when he says this in 2 Peter. This is 2 Peter 3, 9 through 13. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it, on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will 
melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, the power of God is such that he will make the heavens melt. And you and I will stand before that same being and give answer for every word and every action of our lives. What sort of people ought we to be? How do you deal with questions of uncertainty in your own walk with Christ? Maybe you struggle with the knowledge of when your current trial or suffering is going to come to an end. Maybe today you're sitting here struggling with the very same questions being offered and you want to know when all the craziness of this world will stop and the peace of God will win. Maybe there are questions of faith that you are currently struggling with. Part of the faith that God gives us by his Holy Spirit is to trust him even when your surrounding circumstances make no earthly sense. Your, quote, lived experience, unquote, does not overwhelm the faithfulness of God. Daniel, in his human eyes, could not see the end of the exile around him. But God was asking Daniel to trust him, even though it all didn't make total sense. Brothers and sisters, God is asking you to trust him in that same way. To God's people, the man in linen says, God's plan will come to pass. The difference in the numbers between 1,290 and 1,335 is simply to say that God's people must be patient to wait, to endure in the midst of uncertainty, even beyond the point to which we think we need to endure. And if we are faithful to endure, God will be faithful to deliver us by his promises. And this is why God then says to Daniel twice, go your way until the end. In other words, go about your business Live a life faithful to God, all based upon the knowledge that God's plan will come to pass and God is faithful to his people, even when it doesn't seem like it. Nothing, not even exile, death, or martyrdom can defeat God's people. And friends, I guarantee you with the very blood of Christ that on the other side of eternity, you will look back and you will say, God was always faithful to me, even when I didn't see it. The man in linen finishes with an exclamation mark by declaring this assurance of victory to Daniel specifically as he declares to him the last verse, verse 13. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel will one day resurrect to God's everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, this same assurance has been given to you and I if we are in Christ. It was reiterated throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, most powerfully through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are awaiting a resurrection to eternal life in the presence of your Creator. This assurance is for God's people. Resurrection to life everlasting.
Daniel gives us an assurance for God's people, resurrection to life everlasting. Daniel could go about his life without worry or uncertainty about things yet to come, even death, because of the assurance God was giving him that he too would be resurrected to life everlasting. Friends, this same promise extends to anyone in Christ. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise that he made to us. What are those words? Oh. Woo! Hey, how many of you guys are excited about the football season? Go! What is the promise God has given to you? Hey, there we go. You're awake. Eternal life. Eternal life. What is the promise God has given to his people? Hey, you're awake. Good. Friends, if you live your life with that mentality about eternal life, no wonder you're uncertain. No wonder suffering is overcoming you. Eternal life, I think, is probably coming. I don't know. No, eternal life is coming. Amen? Man, I sound like a Pentecostal preacher. Look at what you're doing to me. (laughs) Friends, this is not an optional part of the gospel or the Christian faith. This is core. To not believe and not live upon the promise of the resurrection, the promise of judgment to come and life everlasting, is to not believe in the core of Christianity. Friends, if you think you're spiritual and you kind of buy the cross, but this whole resurrection and, and judgment thing, that just seems kind of, kind of a bit much. Friends, you're not a Christian. This is core to Christianity. The core of our faith is that our Savior died and resurrected to pave the path for you and I. And Daniel proclaimed what Christ verified and what the New Testament writers advanced. We will each face the final judgment. It is certain for those who resist God and oppress his people that they will enter into eternal contempt and shame and punishment. But it is just as true, if not more true and certain, that God's people suffering through trials in the present, hated because of our faith, which is happening more and more, we will experience new life that is beyond anything we can imagine as our second reading stated earlier today. It will be in the new heavens and earth in the presence of the one who created us, died for us, and loves us with an unending faithfulness. Oh, just imagine it. Standing before the very king who died for us. Man, does that make tears come to your eyes or what? Man. Friends, I implore you today, let the truth of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus And his assurance of the resurrection and judgment to come be what drives you every day of your life until we see him. Let the knowledge of the coming judgment drive you not away from Christ, but towards him. In the judgment, his goodness will be ultimately manifest. The judgment will show his faithfulness to his creation his ability to restore and purify by his own sacrificial act of the cross. And even more importantly, it will show his justice, true biblical justice. Those that accept that sacrifice will be saved in mercy and grace, and those that refuse it will be given what they desire in an eternity at enmity with God. 
he will be the perfect gentleman on that day. People may cry out to him, but we did so many good things. We tried to help with the ills of society. And to many of those people, he will say away from me, I never knew you. Why? Because he is not their king. At the judgment, all things will be reconciled and made right and true. Biblical justice will be merited out. And that should cause some fear for those of us that know our total depravity. Wait, God, you're going to give me the justice I deserve? And that's where the cross is so important. It should give us amazing clarity at the fact that we need a Savior. Because if every word I've ever spoken, if every action I've ever done is brought before judgment, man, I deserve hell. I deserve every part of enmity with God. Do you not, dear friend? Do you not deserve that same punishment? But God, through Christ, made it possible that in spite of that, God loves me and God loves you with an everlasting love. But by the blood of Jesus. Not only should it drive us towards Christ, this idea of judgment and resurrection, this knowledge of it, but it should give us amazing clarity with which we can go our way in service of God. As we look forward to that day, Jesus declared to his servants that we are to live in light of the coming day of judgment where each of us will give account for our words, our actions, our time, our talents and treasure, all in the service of our master. Would you turn with me quickly to one of Jesus' parables on this topic? Just as a little added bonus, I want to look at what he says here. Luke 12. Luke 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus says to his disciples and to us who follow him, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men or women who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants." Guys, the third watch was late. That servant would have been going, man, he's never going to come. It's the third watch. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice who's coming? The Son of Man from Daniel. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And if you want to see the bad part of the news, keep reading the rest of that section. But I want to focus on the fact that for those of us who plead the blood of Jesus... As our only righteousness, God has placed us in a new category. We are no longer the outsider who is trying to scale the walls of God's kingdom on our own merit. We are instead those who have been freely given charge over the household of God by his grace while he is away. 
We are assured that he will return, ready to see the growth and fruitfulness of his household, ready to pronounce his joy upon us as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. My guess is that if we are purposefully living our lives in light of the day of resurrection and judgment to come, I think we would probably see a lot less rebellion, a lot less selfishness, a lot less apathy and inaction. In the midst of trial and suffering, there would be a lot less self-pity and woe is me. With the resurrection and judgment in mind, we should be motivated in every aspect of our walk, from how we treat our friends and family, to how we disciple our children, to how we work for our bosses, to how we press into the church, to how we evangelize the lost. And friends, it is not because we are worried and cowering before a horrible God that he will strike us down, but it is because our loving Father who gave his Son to die in our place is coming back, and we want to please him with all that he's given us. Is that not what a loving child does for their parent? We want to hear, well done, good and faithful manager of my household. Not away from me, I never knew you. He's a good God that we want to please. Those of you who do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, when that day comes to give account, do you truly believe that the God who sees your heart will see you as righteous? If you do, then you're lying to yourself. The Bible says he will see you and know your depravity. And so, friends, today you need to give in to Christ's call to surrender your life to him by declaring your need for his sacrifice and forgiveness so that God the Father will see you through his payment on your part, the death of his son. If you need to do that today, we would love to talk with you about what that looks like. Feel free to chat with the person that brought you or look for somebody who knows what they're doing around here or come talk to one of us pastors or elders. We would love to help you walk as a Christian. But for those of you who do know Christ, which I hope is the majority of us in here, when it comes time to give account, when I ask you, how will the way you are living your life and using your time, talents, and treasures, how will it be reconciled? Will they be seen in ultimate service of the King of Kings and his kingdom, or will they be seen as advancing our own kingdom? Daniel is assured, and we are as well, that regardless of when the final events of God's timeline of redemption occur, they will indeed occur. God has promised it. And until then, the wicked will go on being wicked, believing they alone are the judge of their actions. But the wise, the very people this prophecy is addressed to, will realize that God is in control and will have the final victory. And they, hopefully we, will live in light of this fact and in hope of this fact. Daniel has shown us throughout the entire book that no matter what is happening, no matter the chaos or difficulty, God will have the final victory over the sin that has made us beasts rather than image bearers. Because of this fact, true followers of God can survive and even thrive in a world opposed to our faith. We can look to God's faithful word, which tells us that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfilled God's redemptive plan when he came as a man, died in our place, redeemed us from our sin, and resurrected in victory. Because of this, the very hope that Daniel was looking to was fulfilled and solidified in Jesus. 
All we need to do now is trust that Jesus is our fortress, that he is coming for us, and we can patiently endure for whenever that comes. In the words of the author of the letter to Hebrews, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Like the people of Daniel's day, we need this view of the resurrection to come, of the judgment to come, and of the eternity to come, to stand firm in the midst of trial and chaos. Mission Fellowship, let's be a church that takes the encouragement of Daniel seriously and hold one another firmly in the faith that God has given us so that we can stand together arm in arm at the last day hearing the call of our faithful God and Savior to enter his presence for all eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen.